Well, all year we're focusing on learning the way of Jesus, and we just spent three months working through a very famous teaching of Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount. And if you miss any of those uh, sermons, you can go back, you can watch uh, on YouTube or online, you can listen to the audio podcast if you'd like, uh, something to help you fall asleep. But today we get uh, to start a brand new sermon series called Redeeming Regular Life. Redeeming Regular Life. Now this series is from the epistles of the New Testament. That means letters. The letters from the apostles to the early Christian churches around the Roman Empire. And the apostles wrote these letters to these brothers and sisters in Christ, these various Christians in various places, to help them understand and apply the gospel to their life. To what part of life, you might wonder? Well, the answer is to every part. The way of Jesus changes everything, including our marriages, which we'll consider today, but also our sexuality, being single, parenting, our work, our politics, through politics, if we're still friends, our friendships, and so much more, every, every part of life. Um, we're going to cover all of these topics, <laughs> is this wise, in the next few weeks. And, you know, these are all easy topics to talk about. Uh, no, I know that this series is going to be challenging for all of us. No matter where you are in life, no matter where you've come from, the way of Jesus is challenging for everybody, especially with what the world believes about all of these things. There are strong opinions and emotions can run high, but fear not. In some ways, uh, I think it's sometimes easier to accept Jesus as our savior than it is to accept him as our Lord, who actually has some things he wants us to change in our life. But my hope is this. It's not just that you'll be uncomfortable for the next six or seven weeks, but this, that you'll see that in Christ, just regular life is a gift. It, the way of Jesus is not easy, but it's a way of redemption, which leads to true and lasting freedom, joy, and peace. So it's hard, but it's good. So today we start the series off from the epistles of the New Testament with a message on redeeming marriage. And I'm sure you're all good in your marriages, so we can just pray and close this morning. Just kidding. It's, please open to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. If you have a Bible or Bible app, go to Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 21. We'll put the scripture on the screens for you as well. But we're going to read through this passage, and then we're just going to unpack it together. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 21. Now, I haven't said this in a while, but just as a little PSA for you. If you don't know where a book in the Bible is, they have a table of contents right at the beginning. Um, if you, you can use that, and that's very helpful. Ephesians is pretty short, so it can be easy to miss. All right, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit, to your, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless." 
In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is God's word. Okay, there, you're still here. All right, so the book of Ephesians in the Bible is, is an epistle or letter from the Apostle Paul to the Christians in and around the city of Ephesus in the modern country of Turkey. Now, this passage obviously deals with marriage, but it's part of a broader set of teaching, uh, sometimes called the household codes of the New Testament. Instructions on household relationships, household codes, were common in the first century AD when this was written. People had been writing for hundreds of years uh, by this point, maybe, maybe uh, earlier than that, on the relationships between husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters, all of these types of sort of normal in their culture relationships that operated around the household. We know that about 400 years earlier uh, than the book of Ephesians, the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle wrote about household codes as well. But he had a very different teaching than what we find here. He too addresses the same types of relationships as Paul. Now, it might be worth a reminder here that the way of Jesus is a different way than all of the other ways in the world, whether it's the writings of Aristotle or the modern secular view of marriage that's common in our culture today. So, let's start back at verse 21. Ephesians 5.21 says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, let's just pause here because verse 21 is basically the main thesis for the whole rest of this section of teaching. And uh, marriage is one, just one example in this application, an application of this principle. Paul says that we are to mutually submit ourselves to each other in our household relationships. But he gives uniquely Christian motivation in our marriage, which is out of reverence for Christ. Literally, he says that we are to do this out in the fear of Christ. Now, the fear of Christ. Now, this might be parallel to the concept of, of fearing the Lord from like the Proverbs in the Old Testament, of not being afraid of God, not being afraid of Jesus, but of having a holy or a reverent awe of his glory, of his power, that he is the king in our life. Or Paul might be referring here to kind of the healthy fear of the authority of Christ to be the judge of our lives. One day we will all stand before him and give an account of our lives to him, including how we handled our marriages. Now maybe Paul is implying both of those things. But either way, for the Christian, it is out of our respect for and our commitment to Christ that ought to have an impact on all of our relationships, which certainly includes our relationship with our spouse if we're married. So we see this as Paul moves from this general principle in verse 21 to the specific application of marriage, starting with verse 22. Look back at that with me now. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. 
Now, before you ladies throw your Bibles at me, remember, Paul has a few challenging things to tell, say to the husbands in just a second. Nobody is left out of the call to die to yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus. Okay? It's equal, equally challenging and hard. But notice what Paul isn't saying. He isn't saying that every woman should submit to every man because men are superior. Now, that's the argument that Aristotle makes. He's specifically talking about within the covenant of marriage, when two people have unconditionally but voluntarily committed themselves to one another. In that context, what does submit to one another out of reverence for Christ look like? Well, Paul says that wives are to submit themselves to their husbands as, as they do to the Lord. Now, he goes on to say uh, as well, now the church, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. This is a uniquely Christian vision for marriage. Paul bounces back and forth in seeing marriage as a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, and then back to seeing Christ and the church as a picture of marriage and the relationship between the husband and wife. And if we fail to make that connection, we're going to greatly misunderstand what he's saying, possibly even use this text as it has been used in the past to justify an abusive relationship. For example, the statement, wives should submit to their husbands in everything, sounds repressive or as a justification possibly for abuse. But is this the type of relationship between Christ and the church? Is our relationship to Jesus repressive or abusive? Not at all. In fact, it's just the opposite. Only in a relationship with Jesus do we find true and lasting freedom, joy, peace, love, fulfillment, all of these things. Only in a relationship with Jesus do we receive the incomparable riches, as Paul wrote earlier in this letter, of God's grace, and we discover his unconditional love for us. Now, our voluntary submission to Christ is wonderful and life-giving as his church. But only by connecting these relationships, the relationship between Christ and the church, to the relationship between a husband and wife, do we understand that this is Paul's intention for wives to find the same type of freedom and joy and peace in marriage that we receive in the church that marriage might be a wonderful and life-giving relationship for us. His intention for wives is not to be repressed or abused. That would be sinful and unjust. It would violate the great commandment of loving God and loving our neighbor as ourself. Additionally, the, from the first page of the Bible on, we discover that God created both men and women, surprisingly, in his own image and likeness, with equal dignity and worth. And Paul was an expert in the scriptures. He knew the value of women as image bearers of God. But what does this type of submission look like? Well, let's look at the teaching for husbands and come back to that question, okay? Let's keep going with verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. Now again, notice what Paul is not saying. He's not saying, husbands, use your wives however you want because you know men are superior to women or because wives are your property. 
Now, both of those statements sound shocking to us, but both of these statements, incidentally, were common beliefs in Paul's day. I would guess almost everybody in the church in Ephesus had been raised with that vision of men and women, with those beliefs. But instead, in a very countercultural way, yet gospel-centered way, Paul charges husbands to love their wives just as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her, for us. Jesus Christ, okay, remember the gospel, the son of God from eternity past, humbled himself, came into the world that he had made, lived in relative obscurity in his day, had to put up with all sorts of regular, frustrating, foolish people, humbled himself further by suffering and dying on the cross. Why? For the sins of the world. Had he sinned? No, Jesus had perfectly obeyed the law of love and didn't deserve to die, but he gave up his life in our place as a sacrifice to rescue us. Why would he do this? Because we couldn't save ourselves. Well, why was he willing to do this? Because of his great love for us. He wanted to do that. Now, remember the thesis statement of verse 21, kind of our guiding principle through this passage. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So how do husbands do this? By being willing, humbly, to love and serve and ultimately lay down our lives for our wives just as Jesus did for us. But it doesn't stop there. Paul reminds us that the purpose of this costly love of Christ was that we would become a radiant church, splendid, Beautiful, without any stain or wrinkle or blemish, but holy and blameless. The work of Christ is to help his bride grow in godliness and be perfected in beauty inside and out. Now, this wasn't a self centered or self serving goal for Jesus. Therefore, it can't be a self centered or self serving goal for the husband. Husbands aren't called to love their wives so that they'll complain less or that they'll be able to have sex more often or for any other selfish reason. The love of Jesus changes us for the better. It encourages us when we're down. It strengthens us in our weakness. It challenges us to grow in godly character and the fruit of the Spirit. And this ought to be the same goal. Remember, just as this should be the same goal for the husband's love for their wife, to help her grow and change for the better, to encourage her when she's down, to strengthen her in her weakness and gently challenge her and encourage her to grow in godly character and the fruit of the Spirit. Now, how radically different is that vision compared to both an ancient and a modern secular vision of marriage, which really is about making sure that your needs are being met according to your own expectations. The belief being that if your needs aren't being met, then you're free to break your marriage vows. You're free to move on. You're free to find a better spouse. Are you unhappy? Is marriage hard? Move on. But this is worlds different from what we find here. 
The illustration that I often use in wedding ceremonies is one, is that marriage should be like two pitchers pouring into each other. Always pouring into the other, but still always full. Never depleted, never running out, never empty. I think that's beautiful. And that's the kind of marriage that can last until death do us part. Now, before we continue, I'd just like to point out that this teaching of Paul, it doesn't dismantle or reject the authority of Christ as the head of the church or as of the husband as the head of the wife. But don't you see how this is so radically different from the way that the world sees and uses power and authority? You see, if you, if you keep a worldly understanding of authority, that the weak serve the powerful only for the benefit of those in power, that the strong eat the weak, then the call to submission in marriage would be ripe for oppression and abuse and should be rightly rejected. But a key insight into this vision for marriage is the idea that Jesus upended our understanding of authority in the kingdom of God. Remember, his kingdom is a kingdom where the king was willing to give up his life to serve not just his subjects, but his enemies, and not just to make his enemies his subjects or slaves, begrudgingly obedient to his will, but to make us his brothers and sisters in his family, his friends. And yet, Jesus still remains our king. This is what godly leadership looks like. This is what a godly king looks like. And if that's what authority looks like in the kingdom of God, then voluntary submission in a godly marriage could never be oppressive or abusive. So, moving forward with a hopefully redeemed, Christ-modeled understanding of authority, power, and submission, can you start to see the beauty and the wisdom of God's vision for marriage. But really, this is just one of the themes in, in our whole sermon series that we'll, we'll see over and over in the weeks to come, that this upside down vision or view of authority and submission in God's kingdom, it has a direct and transformational impact on the natural hierarchies and power structures of this world, wherever they might be found, in marriage, in parenting, or anywhere else. The gospel changes everything. Well, let's finish this passage starting with verse 28. In the same way, husbands ought to love their, own, their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, in this whole passage, we have two different metaphors for the church. The church is the first, the bride of Christ. Second, the church is the body of Christ. And there are a number of different images like this in the New Testament for what the church is. And each image, each picture gives us a little different facet of the beauty of what it means to be the church. 
So applying the metaphor of the body of Christ to marriage might be confusing at first, but it makes sense when you remember that the marriage covenant unites two individual people from two different families, and as important as those relationships are, to unite them to become one flesh, one body. And this type of united, radical union, this one flesh relationship, represents God's intention for for marriage to be marked by whole life oneness. Husbands and wives are to be one legally, financially, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, and in every other way. In verse 31, Paul quotes Genesis 2.24. By the way, Jesus did as well when he taught on marriage. Uh, on the creation of marriage. Christians believe that it was God who created the institution of marriage and the family to be the basic building block of society. Not that everyone has to get married, that is not the, the purpose of Christian discipleship. And of course, not everyone who gets married stays married for a variety of reasons. Um, just as an example, neither Jesus nor the Apostle Paul were married and Clearly, they were able to live a full and meaningful and God-honoring life. Um, we will talk more about this in a couple weeks when we talk about redeeming singleness. But according to the Bible, marriage isn't merely a social construct to be governed by our preferences or opinions. However, it makes no sense to, to follow the way of Jesus in marriage if you aren't trying to follow the way of Jesus in any other aspect in life. So Christians ought to, we ought to be understanding and respectful of our friends, our family members, and other people in our society who have very different beliefs about what marriage is all about. But if the gospel is true, then our marriages can become a redemptive picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And that, in turn, can help us understand what our marriage relationships should be like as well. Now, what do we do with this? How do we apply this high vision of what marriage can look like to our lives today? Well, for those of you who have been struggling with your marriage, maybe marriage has been tough for you for years. I know I've spoken to some of you and, and asked, like, was there ever, were there ever good times? Not really. Okay. Well, maybe you're thinking then about this vision for marriage and wondering if it's even possible for you. Now, I promise you that it is if you're both willing to follow the way of Jesus. God is in the business of redemption. The message of the gospel is a message of reconciliation, crossing the boundaries between all of the natural divisions that there are in the world, Not just between men and women, but between different races, ethnicities, languages, classes. If the gospel can do that, think of what is possible through God in your marriage. But the path to change and growth and new life in Christ is costly. And it takes time and energy and work and humility. And those things are all costly. It probably will require a series of long and perhaps painful conversations with your spouse to make progress. Many couples are helped by professional counseling, but also the influence of other Christian couples that you can look to and learn from here in the church. 
But if you do the work, the fruit that you will see will not only be honoring to God, but it will result in a better you, a better spouse, and a better marriage together. That's the best return on investment I can think of. But even more so, your marriage can become a picture of the goodness and the love of God found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your marriage, in other words, has the potential to become a light in a world of darkness. Now on the other hand, if you aren't struggling with your marriage, praise God, okay? Just start singing some worship songs today because that is incredible, almost miraculous. See and enjoy and be thankful for the incredible blessing that you have in a healthy and godly marriage. Do not take that lightly. But don't forget to invite others in to your home and to your life. Whether it's in a community group or whether it's just inviting people over for coffee to spend time with you, or it's passing those types of uh, relationship insights and wisdom onto your kids or grandkids. Help others learn what it looks like to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And friends, this is what redeeming marriage is all about. It's doing, frankly, what is impossible apart from the grace of God. And that is to stay committed and stay faithful and stay loving with the person that God has entrusted to our care till death do us part. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your faithfulness to us in our lives. Lord Jesus, thank you for being willing to lay down your, I'm sure, preferences, desires, uh, to lay down your uh, right to be served as the king of heaven. And Lord Jesus, you laid all those things down. You set those aside. You laid down even your life for us. Not just to save us, but to have a relationship with us that would go on forever. Lord Jesus, we thank you. It's amazing to think of what you have done for us. I pray that you would help us, for those of us who are married, or will be married one day, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to follow your way in those relationships, as wonderful and beautiful and difficult and painful as they can be. Lord Jesus, we need your help. We need your instruction. We need your encouragement. We need your correction at times. So fill us, Lord, with your spirit and help us to follow your way. And thank you in advance for the good work that you will do in our lives and in our marriages. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.